You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Starting this last week, we've tried to transition from the last few months, as is our custom, to walk through a book of the Bible. And the last couple of months, we've been walking through the book of Judges, And in the same way that the book of Judges uh, was a a preview and preparation for God's King David that would finally defeat the Philistines and defeat the enemies of God's people, so also we find Luke telling us a similar story about a Nazarite, similar to, almost identical to the nature and, and character of Samson and the Judges, that would be a forerunner, a preparation for God's King that would come and sit on David's throne forever and crush God's people's enemies forever and ever. And so we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke, the first chapter, and last week we began to see how Jesus is ultimately the satisfaction to the longings you've never even expressed and the answer to questions that maybe you're even too afraid to ask. Jesus comes as an answer to prayer that in fact many people aren't asking. And so the first story of preparation for Jesus' coming is the story of the man by the name of Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, who were older than, the Bible says they were advanced in years, stricken with age, the King James says. Uh, they were past their childbearing years, and yet God delivers them a message by the angel Gabriel that they are in fact going to give a birth to a son. And then an angel Gabriel also visits Mary and says, you, even though you're not married and you've never been with a man, you are going to give birth to the Son of God. And the power of the Holy Spirit will overshadow you and a miraculous thing will take place. God will come to be with His people and you will be, you will be the instrument. So we want to pick up in verse 39 and read to the end of the chapter where after the birth of Jesus is foretold to Mary, she begins a journey to go visit her good friend Elizabeth, who's already also found out that she's going to have an unlikely miraculous birth. So beginning in verse 39, in many ways the climax of the chapter of preparation for the coming of Jesus sets the stage, I believe, by means of proclamation, but also exhortation, how it is that you and I ought to celebrate Christmas ourselves. That is, if, if this is a, a yearly reminder, a reminder, mind you, that, that most of the world likes joining us in, in one way or another, to celebrate Christmas with us. They tolerate the Christians the most around Christmas. And if we're going to celebrate the coming of Jesus, that is, literally, the season of Advent just simply means the coming of God, the coming of Jesus to be born on Christmas, what does it look like for us to prepare to be expectant, and to be waiting rightly for the coming of God. So beginning in verse 39, we see the ways in which these first groups of people who celebrated Christmas waited for and anticipated the coming of Jesus. In verse verse 39, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. 
And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And the mercy, excuse me, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him, Zechari- uh, excuse me, called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he, that is, Zechariah, asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Just like as we celebrate Easter, and I hope you hear me say regularly, 
often we can isolate an event to the point that it actually betrays and exposes what we really love and what we really value, and in this case, what we really worship. So the example I use around Easter and around Christmas is like Valentine's Day, right? So if, if you only show great love and care towards the person you love on Valentine's Day, you kind of betray yourself and who you really are the rest of the year, right? And it's not really a good, I mean, you know, take notes on this one. This is a free one. It's not really a good idea to only love your spouse or girlfriend or boyfriend on Valentine's Day because you're showing one of two things. Either, either, you, you, you know, either you've been lying for the other you know, 364 days or the other thing is like this is just a show. And so, as with Easter and Christmas, thinking about that God has come to be with us and for us in Christ is a daily, moment-by-moment cause for rejoicing. Not just on December the 25th, any more than celebrating the resurrection, the power of God over death and sin, hell and the grave at Easter, is something we only celebrate once every spring. And so like Easter like Valentine's Day, we can often isolate the incarnation, that is the, literally the taking, upon, taking on flesh of God to become with us and for us in Christ. And as a result, we celebrate, just like if you only celebrated that person you love on Valentine's Day, you might find yourself lying to yourself or at the very least celebrating that thing in a way that's unhelpful. It's a lie. It's a sham. It's a hoax. And so the way I've invited you to think about this, I asked this question five years ago, the first time we got to celebrate Christmas together, is, is to fill in the blank. It, it's not really Christmas without, and then be honest with yourself, okay, I know you're, you're tempted to give a good Sunday school answer and you think the right answer is, it's not Christmas without Jesus, right? I know that's what you're thinking, but even then, be specific, If that's really not Christmas, what are the ways in which you celebrate that? It's not Christmas. It's not really Christmas without fill in the blank. Be honest with yourself. In the silence of your own brain, like, what's Christmas for you? What is it really? What are you really commemorating? What do you really invest in? What do you hope in? Don't miss this, that Luke actually tells us if you're going to celebrate the birth of Jesus, he gives us, did you, did you catch, this was an 80-verse chapter, 80 verses that are packed with specific ways in which people were preparing for celebrating Christmas. That is, a, in many ways, Luke is saying, this is what Christmas is like. Without these things, it's not Christmas. Without these things, you're celebrating something but it's sure not God coming to be with us in flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And we're invited to have all of these kinds of expectations, ways that we are waiting, hoping for the coming of Jesus because Christians know now in the same way that these people waited for Jesus to come, now we are free to wait and anticipate Jesus and His return. He came the first time to destroy sin, and He will come back again to destroy all suffering, making all things new. So ask yourself, what do you celebrate at Christmas? 
It's not Christmas without fill in the blank. And don't run from the real answers that come up from inside you. They're meant to be indicators. They're meant to show you what you really value, what you really hope in, what you really trust in, the thing you lean on for contentment, peace, satisfaction. And that's interesting because we saw that the preview of this, the, the forerunner that we saw the Zechariah begin to mention at the second half of his song. Did you catch that? We, we saw that this is what John is going to do, and I mentioned this last week, but it's, it's incredibly important because it's a key topic of this chapter. Repentance is the goal. Ask yourself this question. What role does repentance of my sin play for me at Christmas? What I would argue is that most of the time, what we do to celebrate Christmas is just to kind of distract ourselves from that. What do you mean? What do you mean when we're talking about our sin and sinfulness at Christmas? Bring on the, and then fill in the blank. And yet this is something evidently that Luke wants us to know that this forerunner will prepare for Jesus to come. How? Did you catch that at the very end? Same thing we saw last week. He will call these people to look for God in his salvation in verse 77 for what? The forgiveness of their sin. And so, we're meant to see some amazing things here. I want to walk through that, that Luke says Christmas really is. And what we'll see, I think, is a proclamation of what Christmas really is. Good news that we come to find out. And then we have, I think, some exhortations. Maybe some even invitation to, to repent and to confess certain things. There's a waiting with meaning that's going on here. There's purpose in every single one of these things that's happening that sets a stage for what I will challenge you to be your homework this week is to read either by yourself, with your family, both and or every possibility you can, read Luke chapter 2 in the birth of Jesus, but read it in light of the preparation we see here, the waiting that takes place, the anticipation we see in chapter 1. We, I quoted this last week, Bonhoeffer says it this way, that whoever does not know the austere blessedness, just think about that, and to be blessed in a way that's austere, of waiting, that is, of hopefully doing without. That might need to be a bumper sticker for some of you. Because you don't know how to hope if you're doing without. Something, something different here, right? This Christmas celebration must be different. To hopefully, for, of hopefully doing without, it will never experience the full blessing of fulfillment. And what we saw last week is that until you realize that God has come to fulfill a longing, in fact, a longing that maybe you didn't realize you had, to do something that maybe you were too afraid to ask for. We see each of these annunciations last week were met by Mary and by, especially Zechariah, surprise, fear. Like, what? Me? How? But I want you to see that where we began, now, for some of you who, who probably nerded out on this, in, especially in, in the book of Judges so far, or any Old Testament book of the Bible we've studied, this is, we're meant to see here that like this is, this is going to be like a religious history. It's going to tell us something. And, and so the way that Luke has organized it is what we call a chiastic structure. Now, I, don't remember, I don't care if you remember that word, but I want you to see the point of emphasis in this chapter. And a, chiasm, a chiasmus, that is, there's a, like there's a, a one, two, three, two, three, or a one, two, three, two, one, sorry. Like, like a point A, point B, point C, C being the central point, and then point B and point A. And, and they share a common theme, but the emphasis is at the center. So if you remember last week, did you, did you catch it? 
there was an annunciation that began the chapter, an annunciation, a foretelling of the birth of John to Zechariah, right? And then after that, there was a foretelling, an annunciation of the birth of Jesus. And then Mary and Elizabeth get together and the Holy Spirit shows up. And then we have a song of worship by Mary and then a song, a blessing of worship by Zechariah. Did you catch it? See how they're connected? And the point of emphasis we find here is the first thing that we read began, that we began reading in verse 39. That in those days, Mary arose and went in haste to the hill country and met with Elizabeth. Now again, this is the same as we saw last week. The Holy Spirit is the necessary source of power to accomplish God's purposes. That's especially powerful here, right? If you want to, you can skip back to the book of Malachi and the last chapter and the last verses of Malachi tell us about what's going to happen. There's going to be someone who will come in the spirit of Elijah. He will prepare the way of the Lord and he will come preaching in the spirit of Elijah. And after that last prophetic word were four centuries, unlike any other in the history of God's people across the whole Old Testament, marked by silence. There was no anointing, there was no prophet, there was no prophetic voice. And in what we would call the intertestamental period, there was nothing but silence until what happens. You catch it? A proclamation. A proclamation by God through Gabriel, and then a proclamation through the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Mary enters the town, or goes out to the hill country to enter the, to this town in Judah, and then enters the house of Zechariah and greets, right? We don't know how she did it, but it's probably some sort of, hey, you know, Elizabeth, my cousin, I love you. I don't know. I don't know how they would have greeted. And, and we find in verse 41 that whenever Elizabeth heard the greeting, the baby inside of her leaped. And as the baby leaped, the Holy Spirit filled her. As if to say, there's something here. There's something happening that the presence and power of the Holy Spirit is doing. And in fact, apart from this, we won't see anything. Now again, this is a, an invitation for reflection. Just ask yourself, what role do you think the Holy Spirit plays at Christmas? Right? What, what specific ways have you thought about or articulated the work of the Holy Spirit at Christmas? Have you ever found yourself like, you know what, if the Holy Spirit isn't present, then this is just all, it's all worthless. This is a hoax. And my guess is probably not. Probably not at all. And yet we're invited to think like, look, I don't care what you do. If the Holy Spirit doesn't come and demonstrate the power of God, no godly joy, godly affections, godly contentment or satisfaction will be the result. And we see this. Now, and it's really interesting, right? Because if you you could probably imagine some, some women who are both pregnant talking about their pregnancy, right? Like, every time Mozart comes on, the baby kicks, right? Some, something like that, right? Or he kicks whenever, whenever I lay down and lay this way. He always, right? You, you kind of hear this? And Elizabeth's like, every time my baby kicks, the Holy Spirit shows up. What? But it's even more than that. Every time, did you, did you catch, he says, why, why would the mother of my Lord come to me? And every time Jesus shows up, the Holy Spirit comes pointing people to him. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says that no one can even say that Jesus is Lord unless through the Holy Spirit. 
So one of the first invitations we see here is like, what would it be like for you and I to begin to think about and welcome and yearn for the Holy Spirit to be present in the way that we celebrate Advent and Christmas? What if the thing we really longed for and waited for is the presence of God through His Spirit? And is it possible that's the most meaningful waiting? That's the thing Bonhoeffer was talking about. To really long for, to hopefully long for the presence of God. That God would come and give us Himself is a source of true joy. And then, after this four centuries of silence, do you catch what happens? One of the most powerful prophetic words, the silence is broken, the most powerful prophetic word, empowered by the presence of the Spirit of God, is spoken by Elizabeth. Now Luke does this. Luke, like, like the book of Judges, likes to teach us lessons through the women. He likes to teach us lessons through when we're meant to see something going on in the women, and no one talks more about the women that accompany Jesus than Luke. And so, of course, he starts this, and, and we're meant to just see here, just as a side note, the kind of irony. The priest, remember Zechariah, in his unbelief and doubt, what's he doing right now? What's he saying or talking about? Nothing. He's saying nothing. And in the silence of four centuries, what is it that God does? He brings the presence through his son, and what do we see this interaction, the central theme of preparation for Luke 2 and the birth of Jesus? It's the prophetic voice of Elizabeth. Speaking words of blessing over the mother of Jesus. Behold, Mary says, I'm just a servant, so let it be to me as, it, as the Lord has told me in verse 38. And so therefore, the blessing, she says, is like, look, blessing is because you have believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to you from the Lord. Don't miss this, that in the end, Luke is saying this is what Christmas is about. It's about the Spirit of God doing miraculously more than we could ask or imagine. And what we find is that Mary is an instrument of God's grace. In the most literal sense. The Eastern Orthodox Church wrestles as mysteriously with this term, calling her the Theotokos, literally the mother of God. The mo- mother of God, right? There's a, God doesn't have a mother. There's no beginning to God. God didn't come from anywhere. And yet God in power and through the overshadowing work of His Spirit empties Himself to be a child carried by a woman. The whole kingdom whole of God's kingdom comes walking in the room with pregnant Mary. Now, I think this is a powerful image that I share with you on a regular basis. I didn't, I didn't know this until my wife was pregnant, but there's something pretty amazing that happens here, right? Like, uh, whenever a woman is pregnant, she ceases to be a woman. She, like, loses her identity, and her whole identity is her belly, right? It's like... <laughs> Some of you women have experienced this. Like a, a pregnant woman walks in the room and every boop, look at the belly. It's like you just look right at it. And I've seen perfect strangers walk up and go and, and like place their hand on a woman's belly. What? You can't do that. That's, but if you're pregnant, like if you're giving birth to a child, people immediately, they, there's something that happens. Like a, a woman you don't know will walk up and place their hand. And, and, and there's something amazing, right? Her whole identity disappears. And all of a sudden, the focus is what she's giving birth to. Did you catch that here? Immediately, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because when she walks in the room, 
Guess who actually walks in the room with her? I say walks, being carried. The Lord. Mary's an instrument of grace. A powerful instrument of grace. Now look at her song, beginning in verse 46. She begins to magnify the Lord and speaks of my own spirit, she says, rejoices because God is what? My Savior. She's pointing to something. Now this is especially important for us. This is where I have to point to the text to my, to my Catholic brothers and sisters. Like, Don't miss this. Like, as we see here, the emphasis of Mary's words here is her lowly estate and her humility. There is no merit on Mary here. There is nothing special about Mary. And that's really important. Because if God's favor towards Mary is based on her merit then you and I are host. Because that means God's grace is just not really grace. It's just something He gives to reward people when they do the right thing. But Mary introduces us to God's grace. She's a powerful instrument of God's grace. And she magnifies, she praises the Lord. She doesn't make much of like, well, it's because I've been good. or because it's, No, I, He looked on me in my humble estate. In many ways, Mary teaches us the principle that God draws near to the humble. God opposes the proud, but it's the humble that He demonstrates His grace to and through. And the blessing that Mary receives, according to verse 45, is from what? Belief. Trusting that God keeps His promises. And so therefore, that's part of her song. Did you catch that? She's like, God has shown mercy to me. But then also God has shown mercy to those who fear Him. And then lastly, God evidently is showing mercy to all His people. To His offspring forever and ever. And she is the instrument of this. And we thank God for Mary because, again, imagine how this might shape the way we celebrate Christmas. What if the preparation for the coming of Jesus is a posture of humility. I can do nothing. I can receive nothing. God has shown His mercy to me. And my only role, as we saw with John the Baptist, is to simply usher in the presence of Jesus. Her focus is on her lowly estate. Her focus is on God's mercy towards her. And so thus, Mary is an instrument of God's mercy and God's grace. And just like Mary and the favor that Elizabeth says is upon her, and the, even the angel says is on her, it's all God's grace. Notice, this is just another, for those of you especially who have been in the book of Judges, this is another poke at, another stab at, moralism. Mary's not the hero. And that's the first thing she says. My soul magnifies the Lord. My gratitude is for God, my Savior. Mary's just a recipient of God's grace and mercy. And if you see Mary as the moral hero rather than just an instrument of grace, then you will see yourself as either the hero or the villain rather than a trophy of God's grace. Because here's the thing. The world sees right through people who call themselves Christians who deny the reality of their own sinfulness and depravity. 
and see themselves as examples of morality rather than trophies of God's grace. Moralism and humanism says that I can be good. I can do this. But don't miss this, friend. The world sees how clean and crisp you are on the outside, but you can't keep it a secret how dead you are on the inside. We don't know how noteworthy Mary is. It doesn't even tell us. We know nothing about her. Right? This, this ought to be like, remember this? Remember the, remember the birth of Remember the birth of, of uh, Manoah and or, or Samson through Manoah and Manoah's wife? We don't even know who she is. And yet, God knows her. And yet, God in His love and mercy shows favor upon her. So be careful, friend. Don't make this about how noteworthy Mary is. Luke doesn't do that. And friend, Mary doesn't even do that. Mary sings about how gracious and merciful God is. Her lowly estate and her humble place is the topic. Friend, this is what this means for Jesus to be our wonderful counselor. God knows everything about you. He knows your sins. He knows your secrets. He knows your fears. He knows your insecurities. He knows your deepest longings, your aches, and He knows your deepest pain and discouragement. God understands you. He knows your dreams and your disappointments. And and I want you to know that your deepest pains and deepest fears are not anonymous to God. And so therefore, neither is Mary. She is, and we're invited to remember that we are known by God. This is what it means for Jesus to be our wonderful counselor. And look at the lesson of humility. The thing that keeps us at a distance from God is not the weakness and frailty that we possess and we know we possess. The thing that keeps us at a distance from God is the strength that we think we possess. Let me say that again. Mary shows us that the the thing that keeps us distant from God is not our weakness and frailty, that we know deep down we possess. The thing that keeps us distant from God is the strength we think we possess or we wish we possess. It turns out that God shows His favor and blessing as the emphasis of Mary's song points out to the humble. To the people that don't feel entitled to anything. So we begin to see a beauty of God's grace. You'll see that the word magnificat, that's a fancy Latin word for the first word translated, magnify. Magnify the Lord my soul. That, that's, that's where we get that language. And, but just be careful how you think about Mary. Her emphasis is on her lowly estate and her humble posture. Notice, Mary doesn't say how great it will be to be a mom. She doesn't even say how great it's going to be to be the mom. <laughs> The mother of Jesus. Did you catch it? Oh, this is an invitation for your Christmas. She says how great it is that God saved her. She says how great it is that God showed her mercy. She says how great it is that God defeats our enemies. She says how great it is that God keeps His promise to His people. They're not strangers and anonymous. Then at the closing of her song, see, verse 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. 
We need to see one of the other things that, that we see kind of pointed out here is uh, the neighbors heard about what God was doing. So here's what I want you to, to be reminded of. As we think about, it's, it's not Christmas without, we're introduced to, right, it's, it's not really Christmas without humility. It's not Christmas without anticipating the presence of God's Spirit. It's not Christmas without confessing and repenting of sin. And it's not Christmas without proclamation. From the very beginning, there's a look at this, now go and tell. From the, from the angels telling both, both Zechariah, who is ironically can't tell anyone. We'll get to him, he's next. Right? And then Mary, but then also even into the, to the next chapter, right? when the angels appear to the shepherd, what, what do they say? Hey, this is good news, and it's going to be for who? All people. All people. I want you to see it's not really Christmas without proclamation. So ask yourself, like, did, you just, did you catch what's happening? There's all these people come along. Now, you get the proverbial they multiple times. Did anybody hear that? Anybody really paranoid by about the they? You probably got triggered whenever you saw this. Who's they? It's like they. They were all talking about it, but, but yet at the beginning, they rejoiced with her. Something contagious. And then after the child was born, now, this is, this is interesting. Remember, Zechariah is silent, can't speak. And he, this is even better. He's, even, he's still unable to speak even after the child is born. He's had to wait eight days in complete silence. That's just funny and ironic, right? In verse 60, and then the mother answers, look, this is what the child is going to be named. And verse 61, they, there they are again, they always do stuff like this. They said to her, because if you'll notice, they always have an opinion about babies' names. Do You ever notice that? None of your relatives is, is called by this name. And then they made signs to the father. Hey, what, this is, remember I told you, it may not just be that, that John, or excuse me, uh, Zechariah was unable to speak. It may also be that he was deaf because he wasn't just making signs and writing on a tablet. They had to make signs to him. And he says emphatically, this is his name. His name's John. It's powerful. It's not a name in their lineage at all but it simply means that God is gracious. The Lord is gracious. And the minute he did that, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was set loose and he spoke doing what? See it at the end of verse 64? Blessing God. Now, they come back to the story. Fear came on the neighbors and, and all these things. Now listen to this. They were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them on their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with them. Now, here's, here's one of the other things that we tend to miss. Like, How often, when you think about Christmas, do you think about proclaiming the gospel to people that don't believe it? How often, when you think about preparing for Christmas, you think about sharing the gospel with people you know who don't believe it. So if maybe if, even if you're in this room and you, you wouldn't call yourself a believer, you're not yet a Christian, I'm, I'm so grateful that you're here because if, if we read this right, you being here is in many ways why we're here. That you might hear how good God is. That God is not up there and out there waiting to destroy you, but God has come to be with us and for us. And this, friend, is good news. The word he comes to deliver to us is not the word of shame and condemnation. It's the word of peace, acceptance, and forgiveness. And so, it's not real Christmas without proclamation and mission. It's just not. 
you and I have something to say. And that's especially interesting because I bet whatever you, whatever you probably think, right? Remember that? Remember, be honest with yourself. It's not Christmas without fill in the blank. That's, first of all, that's a place that's an invitation to repent, I bet, of worshiping and loving and trusting in something lesser than God himself. But it's also an invitation for mission. Probably one of the most important places for you to declare the good news of God's saving and gracious work might be in the way you celebrate Christmas. Maybe you've built Christmas around family. Not only is that something to repent of, but it's probably the place, if after all, if that's what you've built it on, then everyone else has too, it might be the place where the gospel needs to be declared the most clearly and the most powerfully. It's not Christmas without proclamation and mission. And we see, did you catch the theme there? There's these other people that are a part of this. They're, they're, they're not obviously the mother or father like Zechariah or Elizabeth, and yet they are invited into what? Rejoicing in what God's doing, and then talking about, pondering, and I love this, wondering about. Wondering about how good God might be. So, friend, what would it look like for us to celebrate Christmas Christmas in a way that invites others to wonder about the goodness and grace of God? Because he blesses God, Zechariah does, and the first thing out of his mouth is, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. There's a blessing. The Lord has visited it's the incarnation, you hear, like God's come to be with us, and He's redeemed us. He's redeemed us. This is an impetus for proclamation. Look, Luke makes it very clear that this story of Jesus is one that is to be heralded. It's not Christmas without telling someone about Jesus. Proclamation of God's salvation to Zechariah and Mary, the spirit-filled exclamation of salvation I love it. Did you catch that with Elizabeth? She exclaimed, and then it just in case you didn't know she was being loud, she exclaimed in a loud voice. She exclaimed this blessing for believing the proclamation. There's a declaration of faith that's interrupted here by those, that section where these people get together and do what? They're talking about these things. Friend, let's be a people that live on mission with a message. You have good news that's too good to keep a secret. Now here's the fun part, right? This is, I told you, this is actually the place where, where most people are most tolerant and patient with Christians. They're like, fine, as long as you invite us to drink your eggnog, we'll celebrate your Christmas, right? This is profound because we're invited to be a people that live on a mission with a message. But, but you might be fooled into thinking that since the world is the most tolerant of, of Christians and what they talk about this time of year, that they somehow are a part. It's not true at all. What I share with you regularly is that, that you know what a vaccination is, and I, I know some of you are evil, right? It's not what I'm, that's not the fight I want to pick right now. <laughs> for the purpose, of the, for the, purpose of, the, of the analogy, right? A vaccination, an inoculation is what? It's a weakened form of the actual thing, right? So, so it's a weakened, you know, it's a, it's a worn down, weak version of like the real thing such that when it's injected into you, it builds up an immunity. 
And here's what I, you might be fooled. You, you might, if you don't really believe that Christmas is about proclamation, you might be fooled into thinking, oh, these people, we're all on the same page. We're all celebrating the same Jesus. When in fact, it might be that most of the people you know have gotten a weakened, watered down, broken version of Jesus that they're trusting in that has made them now immune to the actual gospel. And so when <laughs> you have a powerful message to declare, you and I are meant to... We're meant to insist that people would hear. Why? Did you hear the good news? Verse 68, the Lord has visited us. You're not alone. You are not alone. God is with us. And here's the second part. He is redeemed. This is Old Testament language. He's calling back to the ransoming and, and buying out of bondage that God does for His people. Christian, Don't let anyone tell you that you are worthless. Do not listen to anyone who says that you are meaningless, especially not yourself. Christian, He has redeemed you. He has purchased every one of your days. He has laid His own Son to be the price that He would forfeit to win you to Himself. Don't let anyone say that you're worthless. worthless. Especially don't let that person in the mirror say it. We have good news. We've been redeemed. We're not abandoned. And we're not left for dead. You also see a picture of how Christians ought to celebrate Christmas. Did you, did you catch that? It makes a, makes a little bitty argument, and so did Mary, for the inspiration of Scripture. Did you catch that in verse 70? He spoke by what? The mouth of his holy prophet, prophets from of old. Christians celebrate Christmas in a way that we we remind, oh, God keeps his promises. He doesn't abandon his people. And then, just notice this, the order. It's not until verse 76 that Zechariah mentions his son. You've got to think that the people around were like, what is Zechariah going to say? What are his first words going to be? Right? Have you seen Zechariah? Is he still not talking? Man, I can imagine what he's going to say when he first gets the opportunity. And you notice something amazing. It turns out that the baby Zechariah was longing for wasn't his own. The real satisfaction for his soul, the real joy that has been offered to Zechariah that he celebrates and proclaims with emphasis is not the birth of his son. It's the coming of Jesus. And then he turns to, in verse 76, and then says, and you, child. And now, again, he's hearkening all the way back to the last verse of the prophet Malachi before four centuries of silence. And you, you'll be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy by the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Zechariah was longing for a child. But notice that him longing for his child, biological child, John, was just a pointer for his longing for the Son of God. The hope of his own child was simply to point towards his real hope. 
Don't miss that. We're invited to think that our hopes in this world are simply just pointers to our hope in an otherworldly kingdom. Our hopes in this world just point to an otherworldly hope. Remember, we are ambassadors of the world that is to come, not this one. And we get a picture of that, don't we? What I'm really excited about, not just that I'm having a son and this this is crazy and miraculous, what you need to know is that there's a king coming who's going to save us. And my hope for a a son is, is completely encompassed and overshadowed by our hope for a redeemer. Aren't you glad that our hope is in a coming kingdom and not in this world? Look, this is about as political about as, political as I get because I won't sacrifice my own prophetic voice for partisan politics or any politics for that matter. Aren't you glad that the kingdom of God is not in the White House? This week, aren't you glad like the kingdom of God is not up for grabs in the House of Representatives? or the Senate, or any election. Isn't this a good week to be like, this is pretty nuts. Thank God the kingdom's not wrapped up in this. Thank God I haven't put my hope in this world. Good thing there's a king that comes from another world who gives me a transcendent hope that surpasses every single outcome. Aren't you glad the kingdom of God isn't just this world? Aren't you glad there's another world that this King Jesus comes to declare is full of hope? And that's pretty amazing, right? Notice the message of Christmas is not something to do. All right, Jesus has come. Here's what you need to do. It's a declaration of what Jesus would do. And for us, it's a declaration of what Jesus has done. He's redeemed us. He set us free. He's called us into light. And notice all the rejoicing. Did you, did you hear all the rejoicing? It begins with joy. The angel says to Zechariah in verse 14, you will have joy and gladness, and many will, will rejoice at John's birth. And John himself couldn't even wait to be born. He starts rejoicing, right? When, 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 when Jesus comes into the room with his mother Mary, when the sound of the greeting comes to the ears, the baby leaped for joy. Like, Babies have joy before they're born? I don't know. Apparently verse 44 says yes. And so Mary sings her Magnificat. What? My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And when John is born, all the neighbors do what? In verse 58, they rejoice with Elizabeth. And when joy was born, excuse me, when Jesus was born, there's a good slip right there. When joy was born, when Jesus was born, the angelic announcement comes next chapter as you're going to read this week. In verse 10, behold, I bring you good news of Great joy. Friend, how joyful are you this Christmas? It's not Christmas without genuine joy. And here's where I want to prepare you and wrap up on this. I want to prepare you to experience the kind of Christmas Luke imagined by identifying some obstacles that will keep you from having joy in the coming Jesus. And I'll say this as a wisdom was passed on to me. As it is currently celebrated, by and large, Christmas is a hoax. Remember what I told you about like when you really like your spouse on Valentine's Day? 
It's a scam. But for most people, and I would say as it is mostly celebrated by even myself at times, Christmas is a scam. It's a hoax. It's a sham. It's a joke. And what you rejoice in might reveal it. Here's how I know. In the last several decades, the number of people who experience more and more symptoms of depression and anxiety around the holidays is on a steady rise. And so you know this. Some of you know, some of you know this. Some of you think I'm just being Ebenezer Scrooge up here. Maybe a little bit. But some of you know this. Christmas is marked for you by sadness. It's a time where you remember what's missing. And that's meant to call us to think about, is it possible you might be hoping in something that Luke doesn't want you to hope in? It's a scam. Think about it. One of the two main things that we celebrate at Christmas, right, is the family... Right? I'll be home for Christmas, which is a great song from 1943 if you're fighting in World War II. That, that's where that song came from. Have a holly jolly Christmas. Indeed, that for some people, maybe. But like, but like hoping in your family, that only works for the elite number of people. I don't know about you, but like maybe Christmas is a great time where you get to hope in your family. But for the rest of us, we have like broken families. I got, my family's broken by sin. I got, I got to share with a, the gospel with a woman even two weeks ago. We talked about this. She was feeling depressed because what's going to happen? She's going to spend the first half of her day with her children, and the court orders that those children go to their father's house for the second half of the day. And so maybe for some of you, celebrating your family at Christmas is convenient and great. For the rest of us, it's a scam. And the second thing we hope in is like what I would just simply describe as consumerism. And so maybe if you have lots of money, right, maybe, maybe you will get something from Jared Jewelry, right? Like maybe there will be a Lexus outside with a bow on it. I still want to see that happen one day. It is like, <laughs> but for an elite number of people whose families are perfect and, and they have lots of money, they can buy whatever they want. Christmas is awesome. But for the rest of us, it's a scam. Is it possible? We were never meant to think of Christmas that way. Note what the Incarnation says about our humanity. God took on human flesh so that now we have hope. And for us, we begin to experience real, deep, and abiding joy. I'm not abandoned. I'm redeemed. I'm bought and paid for. Friend, if Christmas seems like a scam to you or seems like a hoax or especially if you find yourself experiencing more and more despair can I, can I just encourage you that might be a sign of hope that might be an invitation for you to hope in something better and Luke I think is inviting you and I to go like oh thank God Christmas isn't about this kingdom thank God Christmas isn't about this world thank God that light did you catch that light is broken in from another world not light that comes from within, but light that comes from without. Not an inner light that you know and I know is weak and frail and fails, but an outside light, a light from another world that shines in the darkness. The Word becomes flesh. Know what the in 
Pay attention to what the incarnation says here. It's a critique on humanism and moralism. Christ came because humanity can't save itself. You can't do it. You can't be good enough to fix it. And yet at the same time, Advent is in the incarnation of Jesus, the greatest encouragement and affirmation of human dignity. God took on human flesh. He loved humanity enough to identify with it. So here's our response to light breaking in in ways that maybe you and I weren't even ready to ask God for. Two things. One I mentioned earlier. As we take up an offering this morning, we are giving for this gospel to be proclaimed to the nations. Your giving enables missionaries to be sent to make disciples and multiply churches among unreached peoples and places for the glory of God. And we get to, in a very real and tangible way, invest in and be like not only the angels, but every single other person who was like, did you hear about what's happening? Did you know? Did you you hear what happened to Zechariah? Did you hear about what, what? Did you hear about this? And that's the first call the response that we have. And the second one, in a moment, we will celebrate communion. And we will receive the gift of the broken body and shed blood of the resurrected, resurrected Jesus. We see in these symbols that they represent what we really celebrate and the source of real hope and an invitation to genuine faith. And we invest in taking this message to the nations In a moment, we'll be invited to respond and receive this gift personally. So in a moment, we're going to stand together and sing. And as we're ready, we're going to be invited to take the body and the blood of Jesus in a way that I would argue is deeply and profoundly countercultural to the way that most people around us might celebrate Christmas. I'm, I'm one of them. I have to repent of this regularly, right? I say this especially like with vacations, right? Vacations are a false hope. That's why when you go on a vacation, you need another vacation to recover from the vacation. And so one of the things, the way we repent in my family is when we go on vacation the whole time, we're, I'm not, it's not a lie. We actually just be like, my rest is in Christ, my rest is in Christ, my rest is in Christ, right? Because if you're on a Disney cruise, you're like, my rest is in Christ, my rest is in Christ. It's not this. This is just fun. This is just for fun. This is, this is okay. My rest is really in Christ. My rest is, Right? And the same thing we have to do, I think, at Christmas. Joys in Christ, joys in Christ, joys in, it's not, it's not, joys in Jesus, joys in Jesus. And in many ways, we have to like, repent of making this about something that it's not. And in a moment, as we take communion together, we'll walk and someone will, will, will come up to someone who will break a piece of bread and, and they'll give a tangible and powerful reminder, your joy is not in Christ, it's okay. The body of Christ was broken for you. And the blood of Christ was poured out for you. And now we know we're not alone. And now we know we've been bought and paid for. And especially maybe for some of you, the best news you can hear, that when Christ invites us to the table, the table is not a negotiating table. The banner over the table is not do. The banner over this table is done. The love of God invites us not to negotiate or offer, but to simply receive a gift that you and I know we don't deserve and yet get to be filled with joy as a result. May we respond 
and gratitude and sacrificial generosity to proclaim this gospel to the nations and to our families, to our neighbors, to our co-workers. But then also, might we simply out of the overflow of receiving this good news with gratitude and faith, experience joy in the midst of any season. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your goodness towards us. We thank you for the mercy that you have shown us. Thank you for Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph. And I thank you for the ways that they are instruments of your grace and point us to a deeper and more profound joy we have in our coming King. God, I recognize I, I regularly rejoice in and hope in and trust in lesser things. And we confess that often our despair and our hopelessness is because we've trusted in and we've banked on lesser things. Might this season, as with every single day and moment, be a constant reminder that you have offered light into the darkness. You have true and lasting joy and hope for us. You're not keeping it from us. You're not hiding it. But instead, you broke into this world to give it out. For some in this room, maybe this is the first time they've heard this good news. Might today be the day they receive it with joy? Might today be the day, the first time, that they receive this with gladness? I am received. I am accepted. The Lord is with us and has redeemed us. And then maybe for the rest of us, we just need to be reminded. And may today be a, a powerful and tangible reminder that you have come to be with us and for us. You have given us dignity by coming like us. And you have offered the salvation we could not bring about on our own. Thank you for the hope of this coming kingdom. Thank you for the joy that outlasts our circumstances. It comes to us in Jesus' name. Amen.